Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, hey, Todd? Corey. Not much. Hey. Congratulations on the session. <laughs> Thanks. We have a lot to talk about that today. And we're joined also by Rusty Cannon, president of the Utah Taxpayers Association. Welcome, Rusty. Thank you. Good to be with you guys again. Uh, thanks for having me on. You might be the first person who's had a second guest appearance. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think you might be. So Sounds about right. There's some level of coolness involved with that. <laughs> that's, well, thank you. That's, that's quite the honor. All right. To get us started, I want to... I think what we want to do tonight is just kind of look back on what happened in the legislative session, maybe talk about a few of the issues that we didn't talk about before. We've got Rusty here who's going to give us the, the breakdown of the tax bills that were passed, which were you know pretty significant and historic in a lot of ways. But first, a few data points. I think there's some really good data that was collected by BYU professor uh, of political science, Adam Brown. Adam, if you're listening, we were in the same class at BYU. You may or may not remember that. In any case, uh, 929 bills were introduced. That's a record, I believe. 575 bills passed. That's also a record, I believe. By one. Yeah, we did 574. Ah, okay. Senator Wayne Harper, congratulations. You introduced the greatest number of bills at 31. You also passed the most at 28. That's a 900 batting average. Yeah. Pretty dang good. For such a high number. Mine was much lower. Ryan Wilcox had the most in the house with 25 introduced and 20 passed. Our very own Todd Weiler introduced 24 bills and passed 16. Still very impressive. And, and those other eight all died the last night of the session, especially because we finished early. So uh, if we'd have kept on going, I'd have passed. That last hour and a half is what you were yeah. waiting for the whole season. Well, we finished two and a half hours early. Oh, so. two and a half hours. <laughs> okay. All right, so the majority, overwhelming majority of bills actually passed with strong bipartisan majorities. Now, this actually runs contrary to everything that we hear about the Utah legislature and how it completely ignores the Democrats and runs roughshod. But actually, 77% of the bills in the House and a whopping 87% of the bills in the Senate were passed by, over, uh, by bipartisan majorities. And uh, to their credit, Trib pointed out that on, av- on the average vote, 93% of House of representative, House representatives and 97% of senators were on the winning side. So, I mean, there actually is a lot of things you can point to that a lot of reasons and a lot of data that you can point to to say, actually, this is a pretty good, you know, bipartisan. It is. Excuse me, uh, legislature. And let me point out, to Congress. freshman state Senator Stephanie Pitcher in her first year in the Senate passed 10 bills and you know, people are like, oh, you can't pass a lot of bills if you're a Democrat. Well, that's never been true. Karen Maine passed 15 a couple of years ago. So that, I mean, that's pretty impressive. And I'll tell you what, if you are a freshman member of Congress, you're not going to pass 10 bills regardless of what you're in. <laughs> so, um, so I think that does tell us something real about the level of comedy in, in, in the Utah legislature. So 67% of GOP bills passed both houses, 34% of Dem bills so, you know, Democrats weren't able to pass as many, but of course they weren't in charge, and, but they did pass a lot and they were on the winning side 93% of the time or 97% of the time. So I think that those are some good stats and it does show uh, a pretty active legislature.
All right, so I'm going to move to you, Rusty. You've already introduced yourself. Um, congratulations on being special on your second, <laughs> second visit. I wonder if you could give us a rundown of the most impactful tax bills passed this legislative session. And among other things, the legislature passed a $400 tax cut, $400 million tax cut, I'm sorry. Uh, can you break down that bill for us and also give us an overview of the other tax legislation the, the food tax in particular also, I mean, it's because yeah. there's some complexity involved with it. Yeah, you bet. Um, I, I think, you know, those are some interesting statistics you talked about. I was thinking, boy, I wish the bills that we work on were that bipartisan. But usually the, the partisan split shows up when we're dealing with taxes or, or some other issues as well. But yeah, the tax bill, there was sort of one big effort or a few big efforts that I think could be summarized in three pieces. Um, the first piece was the rate cut that they passed, right? That's the 4.85 to 4.65 on the income tax rate, individual and corporate. They put in an additional raise in the exempted amount of uh, Social Security that'll be uh, shielded from state income tax. And a few other things that dealt with some child tax credit, things that are a little smaller on the fiscal note side, but still meaningful for the families that it'll apply to. That, that was the first piece. The, the second piece that they put in the same bill was a provision that will remove the state portion of the sales tax on food in Jan on January 1st of 2025, if voters pass the third piece of this, um, which was a constitutional amendment that Senator McKay forwarded, uh, SGR 10, that will remove the constitutional earmark on income tax in the state of Utah. Uh, we sort of eroded it a few years ago and, and, and it can be used for some services for children and those with disabilities, but generally speaking, it's pretty much earmarked for education. We are the only state in the nation that has this specific problem. So this is something we support as an association of long, you know, hoped for, and hopefully uh, it will be passed by voters. We think it will. Um, and that will basically make the state and Senator Weiler's job a lot easier uh, to where, um, like all these other states, all the money goes into one big bucket, and then they figure it out from there. Uh, versus they've been using duct tape and bailing wire basically to, to make the budget work for quite some time. So that'll be forwarded. It'll be a big conversation leading up to it in 2024. Uh, I guess you could make tweaks to it next session. We have one more session before, you know, it, it, it hits the ballot, but that's, that's the main piece. And back to your point, this is pretty historic. Um, th this would be, essentially that's been in the constitution um, ever since uh, the beginning um, of, of the income tax for the most part uh, in, different, in different amounts, but uh, this is a big deal. And so that will be uh, a thing in 2024 that will be, be talked about a lot. Now, after that, then the state sales tax on food will be removed. We do want to make it note that, you know, there will still be sales tax on food, on unprepared food. It's the local portion. That's 1.25%. I, I personally don't think that'll ever go away, but um, it'd be quite the battle if they did try to get rid of it because it really supports local government quite, uh, quite a bit. So those were the, the big rocks that were, were lifted on tax. There were a bunch of other bills, and I'm happy to talk about those two that were a little more in the weeds. Um, some we supported, some we opposed, uh, dealing with some sales tax or property tax or a few other things, but they're, they're fairly technical in nature. But those were the most meaningful. Um, and, and they saved it all to the end. Um, they, they're early in the session. As Senator Weiler knows they tackled some of those other issues, other subjects, and then the tax conversations were at the end, um, there were quite a few revenue and taxation committee hearings that were actually canceled early in the session because we were just waiting and waiting and waiting for, yeah. for these bills to move forward. So it was sort of a sprint at the end. One other thing they're waiting on 
uh, was what the second to last week or so of the session, they get new revenue estimates um, of where the state revenues are going. And everybody is waiting for that number to come out to see if there'd be more room for a bigger tax cut or flip side, a smaller tax cut if those numbers change drastically. Um, the month to month figures that we follow pretty closely because we watch this stuff really closely. Um, we thought that it would be another decent sized surplus to where you could add to that tax cut. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, the projections for next fiscal year, which they were budgeting for, um, they're projecting it to be flat. You know, I don't want to get too far off the reservation. We don't agree <laughs> based on the month to month data that we think, yeah, we're going to probably repeat what we just did. And, and you heard it from President Adams. Uh, said, well, hey, 2024, the year of the tax cut, you know, again, 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 he keeps he keeps uh, saying that. Uh, and we think that's going to happen. Um, even though there's some choppiness in the economy nationally, at times, Utah's economy is pretty resilient, pretty strong. The growth rate is still, or I'm sure, I should say the rate of growth of tax revenue is declining, but it's still a rate of growth. Mm. So we, we think that, that those revenues will still come in pretty strong. And Senator Weiler and the others will, will likely be sitting on another surplus, we think. Um, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody can predict the future, but that's that's where we sit now. So so we think we could repeat what we did this year again next year, which we're fine with. It's great if the tax cut is piece by piece, little bit year after year. You know, that's one way to do it versus cutting it all at once, which is what some other states have done. You know, our, our biggest competition to the South Arizona, they cut their rate to two and a half percent from four and a half. Wow. Their cut was one point nine billion dollars. Um, our rate cut was, you know, just under 400 million, um, still, still good, but, um, we hoped it had been better, but, you know, we'll take, take whatever win you can get, um, and, and respect the process, um, as it goes forward. So that's, that's kind of a summary of, of the big rocks that were lifted on tax this session. Good stuff. So a follow-up question on, on the income tax cut. So we saw, you just said that in, in Arizona, they cut it by, cut it to two and a half percent. That's, that's pretty impressive, but, um. You know what's 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 your response in, in turn you you represent taxpayers and what's your response to the criticism that well taxpayers are only going to get i forgot what the number was but two hundred dollars a year or something like that mm -hmm. and uh so you know what we really should do is focus take that money and focus it on uh, social programs or whatever how do you guys um yeah that's a good question i mean that's just going to grow government right and and a government taxation is a direct result of government spending. There's no way around. And they do need to spend, they do need to increase spending, you know, to, to satisfy the needs and demands of the society, which is fine. Um, but history has always shown that lower tax rates bring more revenue over time, not less. Um, you look at any of the states that have uh, cut taxes over the, for instance, North Carolina, back in about 2010 or so, their legislature flipped from Democrat to Republican control. And they went on a tear for about, uh, 10 years to where they had some revenue triggers they put in. They said, we're going to cut the income tax rate. And then if revenue grows, we'll cut it more. And, and just had that ladder going. It, it fired all 10 years. And now they've gone wow. from somewhere around 7%. Now their, their individual rate is well below four. And their corporate rate is two and a half and about to go to zero in a wow. few years. And so, wow. so it's been working. History shows that is pretty much always the case. Uh, if you restrain spending and um, and be measured about it, which is how Utah does it, um, so that we think it's just it's better in the long run. It grows the pie. If you look at what funding education had back in 2007, when we went from that seven percent to about a five percent flat, it was I don't have it in front of me, but it was a fraction of what it is now. 
I mean, revenue has more than doubled since then. I mean, so there, there's a bigger pie. That's the idea is you lower rates, it grows the pie for everybody and, and produces more revenue. But I think there is momentum um, in Senate leadership, also House leadership to take that rate lower. Um, we need to be measured about it. We need to fully fund education, which everybody's shown that they, you know, the, you know, Senator Weiler included, they've all done a good job of, you, you never get any credit for it, Todd, as you know, <laughs> but, but you guys, you guys very healthily fund education this year was a massive amount, um, which, you know, he's fully aware of um, that they get, you know, handed out quite a bit of money, ongoing money that will continue for education. And they'll still get told that they don't do enough for education. Well, we think it's rid ridiculous. There's no saturation level. There's no point where public educators in Utah or any other state would say, we have enough money, you know, spend it somewhere else. That, that, that doesn't exist. So we usually measure education funding in the WPU, which is the weighted pupil unit. And, and over the last 11 years, on a good year, you know, we funded the WPU at 4%. On a great year, it's been 6%. This year, if you take all of the all of the ongoing and the one-time money, it's like an 18.5% increase. Wow. wow. I mean, just to yeah. put it in perspective. Now, about 6% or 6.5% of that was one-time money. So it's still almost a 13% increase in the WPU, whereas the previous high from the last 11 years has been 6%. Let's continue this conversation, Todd, about uh, significant bills that were passed um, that we haven't discussed yet. Uh, full day kindergarten was one of them. Obviously, you just you just talked about that sixty million dollars, um, additional sixty million dollars a year. Uh, that that bill was sponsored by uh, Representative Spendlove, so it makes full day kindergarten available statewide and with still the option of half day kindergarten if parents request it. And just to be clear, we passed full day kindergarten last year, but we did not fully fund it. And so the, I mean, the historic part this year is it's now been fully funded. So we partially funded it last year um, and now it's been fully funded. This is a big deal, Corey, because we're not forcing anybody to, we're not taking kids out of their mother's arms. But if you think about it, you know, if you have a single mother who's on welfare, you know, do we want her to have to leave her job in the middle of the day to either take her child to or from kindergarten? Because, you know, half day kindergarten is it's a two and a half hour day. So if you start at eight o'clock, you're done at 1030. You know, if you start at 11, you're done at 130. And so what we were what we've been hearing from a lot of parents is we, you know, how, how, how do we do this? And so, you know, if you want people, you know, working instead of on food stamps or, or whatever, you ought to support this. This is a good move for, for working parents. Yeah, and I think that that's a great straightforward explanation of kind of what the reality of this of this bill is. And I'm I'm really glad that, that the option remains to for parents to choose half-day kindergarten because you know, in a lot of ways, especially boys, are really not ready to go to school when we send them to school. I, I don't believe. And so, you know, it's 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 not the worst thing in the world for them to kind of ease into it and Study after study has really not, there really has, isn't any data to show that, that uh, pre-K or full day kindergarten has a long-term effect. It has maybe have short-term effect first two or three years, but it does make a lot of sense, I guess, from the standpoint of people trying to get back to work, you know, after having kids at home and, and uh, childcare. 
and the, the data um, is showing in Utah, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's every school district, but I know Canyon School District is reporting that kids are showing up for kindergarten and first grade. They, they don't know their alphabet. They don't know their shapes. They don't know their numbers. They're less prepared now than they were five or 10 years ago, which you would think with COVID, with every, you know, all these parents staying home for two years from their jobs, the kids would be better prepared. But what we're hearing from the school districts is that they're less prepared than, mm. than they have been in the past, which is really disappointing. And that that's on the parents. Yeah, um, yeah. All right, so another, an, another couple of bills that were passed related to uh, social media regulation for youth. So uh, first, there was a bill, a uh, McKell bill that would require minors to get parental consent to sign up for social media. Verification is going to be the tricky part, I think. And, and I know it went through some revisions in response to the privacy concerns. We probably ought to invite uh, Senator McKell on the podcast to walk us through it a little bit. Uh, we have talked about this a little bit, Todd, but, um, you know, you voted for it. Is there any, any thoughts that you have about it? Well, it'll be interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll probably face a lawsuit about that. Well, and the governor's already promised that we're going to sue some social media companies for harming our kids. And it's amazing if you look at a chart of um, teenage um, teenage uh, admission to emergency rooms, it, you'll see like a flat line. And then when you hit 2010, it just goes steadily up all the way to 2022. And it's especially bad for girls. Um, for whatever reason, I think social media uh, impacts all of our youth in a negative way, but it, it it's much more severe uh, for teenage girls yeah. uh, than it is for boys. But, but it's still bad for boys. Um, uh, so I think it is appropriate for us to do something. I've heard a lot of pushback on this bill. Some people I respect saying, "Hey, this is a parental decision." You know what? So is alcohol. So is so <laughs> so is meth. So is um, tobacco. And yet we still say you can't buy those if you're a minor. And so. Um, I don't think that by saying, you know, because I, once this bill is implemented, if a if a 14 year old wants to join social media, they're not going to be able to without uh, I, I don't think they'll be able to until they're 15 or 16. But then they're going to have to have parental uh, permission. And of course, there's ways to work around that with VPNs and things like that. But that doesn't mean we can't be aspirational and try. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that is the point is being aspirational and trying. I'm a, I, I mean, I think I, I love that uh, taking a hard look at this and I, I applaud Senator McKell. I am a little a bit skeptical that it's going to have much of an effect um, just because the kids know how to get around it for one thing. But even more importantly, whatever app they're using today is not the one we're going to use tomorrow. Well, yeah, I know. Um, and you're right. But I, I think I think it's not going to have an effect in the next year or two. I think in the next decade, it will have an effect. That's my hope, at least. Mm, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And the other related bill was uh, Representative Tusher bill creates a private right of action for individuals to sue social media companies for harming teens. And this is the interesting part. Companies would have the burden of proof to demonstrate that their products are not harmful to teens. I freaking love this. I think it's a great idea. I don't know that it's actually going to uh, hold up, <laughs> but, but uh, it is pretty wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I applaud him for that. I know the governor this is what he was really interested in, too. And just so we're, you know, just so we're sure everybody's uh, on the same page. So this would allow parents to file a lawsuit and potentially recover attorney's fees. And you don't have to sit around and wait for the attorney general's office to do it. So that's what we mean by private right of action. Be interested to see, you know, how many um, of these lawsuits get filed. But I do think that it, this is analogous to the 
1950s when cigarette companies, tobacco companies were running these cigarette ads targeting youth and then lying about it to, you know, yeah. um, because, you know, Facebook and TikTok, they, they know, they know exactly what they're doing. And I think the most fascinating thing about all of this is the Chinese government, the government doesn't let Chinese people use TikTok even <laughs> because they know how bad it is. It, it was designed, you know, to kind of sowed seeds of trouble in, in Western countries. But yeah, it, it is what it is. Snapchat um, and even Instagram, unfortunately. Yeah, so much more to come on these issues. And uh, and we, we should have uh, these uh, legislators on to kind of talk Absolutely. through it. Yeah. Thinking. All right, another one was uh, ban on abortion clinics. So this was a Lizen B. McKay, Dan McKay bill prohibits the new license licensing of new abortion clinics. So from here on out, abortions need to occur in a hospital. No, and this, this is a media lie. The bill says that from here on out, uh, abortions will have to uh, take place in a hospital or a, a, a clinic. And so Planned Parenthood just has to apply for a new license as a clinic. Everybody's everybody's on all of the airwaves saying, oh my gosh, hospitals are 10 times more expensive. This is damaging to single women. No, the bill allows abortions to continue to take place in clinics. Um, and, you know, some areas, if you're in rural Utah, a hospital might be your only choice. Um, and, you know, nobody's going to Instacare for an abortion right now. Let's not pretend otherwise. But th this, this bill has been really distorted in the media. They're not lying. They're just emphasizing the hospital part and they're de-emphasizing the clinic part. Um, it's not as big of a change. And remember, once the once the injunction gets lifted, you know, the number of abortions are only going to be allowed for health of the mother or uh, rape or incest, you know, so um, we're not talking about a lot of recreational abortions. And I, and some people would say there, there never were a lot of recreational abortions. And I think that I think opinions on that are very widely. So, mm, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that because yeah. uh, I needed to get set straight too. So yeah. thank you for that. Are there any others? Uh, actually, you know what? Let's start before you step back and say, uh, you know, what else did we miss? We still haven't had a chance to hear about your lethality assessment bill oh. that you worked on with, uh, with the Lieutenant Governor. So I wonder if you Yeah, and she, she deserves most of the credit. It's Senate Bill 117. Basically about half of the, you know, if your sister, let's, you know, hypothetically were involved in a domestic violence situation with her husband or, or living boyfriend, when the police show up, there's a there's a, a two-minute test, three minutes max. It's 11 questions. It's called the lethality assessment protocol. It's been around for um, almost two decades. And about half of our police departments use it and half of them don't. But uh, based on the answers to those 11 questions, the police are in a lot better situation to warn someone like your sister, you know, like maybe you should not go home tonight. You know, one of the questions are, has your partner ever threatened to, does he have a gun? Has he threatened to kill you? Has he threatened to kill the kids? Has he choked you before? Things like that. And uh, those questions kind of cut to the, they're based on science and they, they, they just allow the police departments to kind of really know how serious of a situation they're dealing with. And so based on the responses, we expect the cops to like dial a number and immediately hand the phone to your sister to connect her to help 
And so that bill also, it creates an app for the police to use. Mm. Uh, we're going to take that number, like if she answers yes to eight of the 11 questions, that eight would appear on the probable cause statement. So the judge would have that information. I wouldn't have her answers, but just the number of yes responses. And, um, and then we also uh, dramatically increase funding for social services. So when the police dial that number, there's somebody on the other end to answer and to uh, provide assistance. Um, in Davis County, where I live, every, every police agency was already using the lab, but like Salt Lake City doesn't use it, which is amazing. I think they had their own two or three question, but we're gonna make that uniform across the state and we're hoping to save some lives. You know, one other bill that wasn't on your list was Tim Hamonis's. he's a freshman from Twilla, House Bill 427, the UEA, the, the teachers union is asking the governor to veto it. It basically takes the same criteria for critical race theory that the legislature passed two years ago in a resolution and the school board has already put in a policy. It takes that and puts it into state code. And, you know, the, the big pushback on CRT is, oh, you know, Republicans don't want our kids to learn about history. No, that's not the problem. You can learn about civil rights. You can learn about slavery. You can learn about all of that stuff. I mean, I, I think that, that the concern with CRT is, is you're going to be shaming kids because they were born white. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the governor does with that bill. I think, I think had the original version of that bill passed, I think the governor would be tempted to veto it, but it was watered down and then watered down a little bit more. So my guess is he'll, he'll let that bill go into effect. Good stuff. Any other last thoughts? Um, you know, the great Salt Lake, let, let me just end on that. Um, a lot of activists, you know, they, they, they think that this is a sprint rather than a marathon. It took us a decade for the lake to get this low. It's going to take, a, you know, we're not going to refill it overnight. Mother Nature's doing a great job all by herself of helping. Yeah. But we have, you know, we've spent about a half a billion dollars last year. And we, we've allocated about another half a billion dollars this session to try to get more um, water into that lake. And this is a generational um, change that we're making. And so, you know, we're not putting water in the lake, you know, at this moment, but we're setting policies so that over the next hundred years, uh, you know, billions of more gallons are going to flow into the lake. So we're not going to let the Great Salt Lake dry up. And uh, I'm excited. It raised uh, a foot between November 5th and like January uh, 12th. And, and I, I'm not sure how much it's raised since January 12th, but I'm excited to see in April, or May or June, if it's up two or three yeah. where it was. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome, and it, it reminds me of when I was a kid when it used to feel like it used to snow a lot more, and so it's yeah. been an exciting year. It has and, been. And uh, we had uh, so I had the the uh, speaker Wilson was over at our house for a town hall this past week, and and that was you can tell that this is an issue he really cares about because yeah, for sure, you know he really emphasized it and spent some time talking about it. So so the media is saying, oh, we didn't do anything to save the lake. Well. Yeah, we didn't we didn't uh, put every farmer out of business and you know <laughs> use uh, condemnation authority to take away all their water that they've had in their families for 150 years. Yes, we did not do that, but we are doing. We passed several bills. We're doing everything that I think is prudent to to, to make sure that we get more water into the lake. But this is a problem that's going to take several years to to address. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. That's it. Thanks, Todd. Thank you, Rusty. Once again, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks, All right. Man. Catch you guys next week.